Welcome to Unleashing Sister Saints, a podcast focused on strengthening women's faith in Jesus Christ and helping them wrestle through the sometimes complex gender and cultural dynamics in the church. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, a global expert in women in leadership, a mom of four, and I should say a grandmother of six, and a devoted member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I love the word unleash, and I use it often. Now, in each episode, we try to include research, some personal experiences, and a challenge to help you feel free to bring your whole self to the Lord's work. Today, I'm so excited to continue a conversation we had several weeks ago regarding LGBTQ Latter-day Saints and their families. I am so grateful and excited to welcome back Dr. Lisa Hansen to the show and to welcome Dr. Lisa Diamond for the first time. Lisa D. and Lisa H., welcome both of you to the show today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. So if you haven't listened to our first episode with Dr. Hansen, go back to episode 74, where we talked with her and mom, Colleen Potter, about lived experiences with LGBTQ children and for ways to respond to others with love instead of judgment. Today, we're going to dig deeper into the research of how we can help LGBTQ plus individuals feel safe, loved, and that they matter, and ways for families of these individuals to go through these challenges while maintaining a foundation of love, protection, and affirmation. So as a reminder, Dr. Lisa Hansen is the clinical director and founder of Flourish Therapy Incorporated, a behavioral health clinic located in Provo, Utah, with a mission to improve the mental health and well-being of LGBTQ plus and SSA individuals and their families. And to introduce the other Lisa in the room, Dr. Lisa Diamond is a distinguished professor of psychology and gender studies at the University of Utah, where she has taught for 25 years since receiving her PhD from Cornell. University in 1999. She has written and presented extensively on the development and expression of gender and sexuality across the life course and health consequences of social connection and social exclusion. Currently, Dr. Diamond studies the role of social safety in the experiences of LGBTQ individuals raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I know, Lisa, you study other things as well. And also, you study the factors that promote adjustment and acceptance among Latter-day Saint family members of LGBTQ individuals. Now, while Dr. Diamond has never been Latter-day Saint herself, over the years in Utah, she has forged strong personal and professional ties with LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, and we're so grateful to have her on the show today to share her experiences. So, long introduction. Sorry, I wanted to set the stage. And so now let's jump into the questions. So, Lisa Diamond, Lisa D, I'll call you. First of all, can you share more about your background and how you found yourself studying Latter-day Saint individuals in the LGBTQ community and their families? And why in Utah? I did not ever expect to end up in Utah. And I sort of feel now that maybe it was my destiny. And I tell people that it's been the greatest gift that my career has given me to end up in Utah and to discover what I've discovered here. So I was raised in LA and to a, an atheist father and a Southern Baptist mother, all of their best friends were Jewish. And so we really grew up with a lot of Jewish rituals. And because my last name is Diamond, which was shortened from Diamondopolis, the Greek was 
Oh, great family. All the teachers at my school apparently thought I was Jewish. So I kept getting all of the Hanukkah solos in the Christmas concert. And I thought it was because I was a good singer and it was because they thought I was Jewish and like we're trying to be <laughs> inclusive. Although now I'm married to a Jewish woman and we had a Jewish wedding. So I'm like, I have this very strange kind of non-religious, but culturally religious background. And one of the things that I sort of discovered through my wife, Judy, is the role of religious culture in forming someone's identity. And that even though Judy, my wife, doesn't necessarily practice a lot of Judaism, we celebrate the Sabbath every Friday. It's a way of closing our week of sort of like drawing some peace into our lives. And through her and also through my family, I've always been aware of the cultural and the ritual and the ways in which communities coming together can be an important part of identity separate from certain kind of ideologies or belief systems. So then I ended up getting this job at Utah. And people were like, why did you choose Utah? I didn't choose. It was the only job I was offered. I got my PhD and this was the only job that was available to me. My wife and I were like, how is this going to work? This doesn't seem like it's going to, like I study LGBTQ populations. How is this going to go? And I had no idea what a huge community there was here in Salt Lake. So that immediately sort of struck me. Teaching at the U and ended up teaching a lot of students who had backgrounds as Latter-day Saints. And because I was teaching in gender and sexual identity, I ended up sort of getting to know a lot of LGBTQ folks in the church who were in various dimensions of struggle with themselves, with their families. And I had come out as a lesbian in Chicago. And in the sort of like urban world, it's like, oh, yeah, if your religion doesn't accept you, just leave your religion and like blah, 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 blah. And because I hadn't been raised in a religious context, I was like, yeah, yeah, if your religion doesn't like you, I had a really facile understanding of those things. But talking to my students over the years and getting more of an appreciation for the ways in which their connection to their faith was not only spiritual, but also cultural and also had to do with their family and also had to do with their entire social fabric. I mean, it was basically an example of everything that I was studying as a health psychologist about the role of social connection in supporting your immune system and like keeping you healthy. And I was like, wow, the notion that you would cut those ties, that's a unique form of suffering. And it's not a solution to say, just forget about, you know, don't worry. Like, All your family, your parents, everything. You can't just ever forget about that. It was like this conflict. Staying was painful. Leaving was painful. And I became more interested in how do we kind of talk beyond some of the doctrinal stuff to get to this sort of human level of what does it mean to be connected and what does it mean to feel that you have people who would come running for you to protect you and hold you. And also it sort of made me more aware of the unique forms of suffering of family members who themselves feel caught between what they know intellectually about doctrine and their very visceral human connection to the people that they love and the difficulty of holding two truths at the same time. I love and completely accept my child or my sister or my brother or my aunt. And there's this complicated system that doesn't make that love make sense. And yet I've got to hold the two in tension and just find a way to move through the world in tension. And so I found that to be more like intellectually and personally kind of challenging and meaningful than anything else I've ever studied. 
I'm so glad you're wrestling in the space. I'm going to get over to Lisa H. soon, but I do want to say one of the things I've appreciated about working with you in the last few years is your way of respecting people and trying to listen to the challenges, whether they're parents of LGBTQ or other issues, too, because you and I have been in conversations about race and other race, ethnicity, and other kinds of conversations. But I've had people that have moved to the state of Utah and just tried to shame people that were there and doing. I love your research lens of saying, let's listen, let's understand. So thank you for that respect that I felt from you and being able to, you know, you've published in the work that I lead in the state of Utah and your awareness of let's make sure the wording is good because we want to be respectful, yet we also want to give voice. So thank you so much, Lisa H. Tell us a little bit. People may have listened to a couple of episodes ago, but if they're jumping right in, tell me a little bit about your background background and how you ended up in this space. Well, I think people who are paying attention to social belonging soon recognize that sexually and gender diverse people in Utah do not thrive without some extra care. They tend to grow up in families that the culture does not support their social safety. It may be one of the first venues that they find that they don't feel socially safe. When they grow up in the church, they grow up with a sense of, I'm a child of God. There is a plan for me. I can follow God's plan for me. I'm aiming for the temple where I will have a family that will love and be with me forever. And as they recognize that aspects of their identity are at odds, they begin to recognize they are not safe to share their identity. And they actually have to reach outside the family to find the beginnings of that. And that's tremendously challenging unless it sort of comes to them by way of a friend or a teacher or a counselor. That isn't a guaranteed thing. And it's becoming less and less accessible in Utah because of public policy. Yeah. So it's a challenge from the beginning for families who care about their children to not be their children's first source of lack of social safety. Thank you for that. So in your clinic, Flourish Therapy, tell me a little bit more about that. Do you focus solely on LGBTQ or is that one of your big categories, just so people understand that? Sure. I went back to BYU to get my master's and doctorate degrees, both in marriage and family therapy, because I did want to help families with this issue. And before I actually was awarded my PhD degree, I started Flourish Therapy for this express purpose. And we became a nonprofit five years ago. And since that time, we now have 55 therapists who focus on this issue. And because donors donate for this issue, we tend to focus on that. I also like to work with couples and families. That's one of my specialties. People bring in their insurance to pay for those things. We'll also see those clients. But pretty much, we've now done 55,000 sessions of therapy with LGBTQ families, primarily here on the Wasatch Front throughout the state of Utah. But we also see clients in 12 other states. So you've really grown a lot of sense. Yeah. And can I just say what a gift for families and so many that you're doing this and feel called to do that work. And I use that word calling in the church called from God, but I also use that calling being called whatever that looks like for you, where you feel this meaningful pull to work. At least uh, whatever calling means to you, I feel like you're called to do this work too. No, it's a beautiful kind of way to think about it. And I recently started this kind of research network at the U, the Utah Network for LGBTQ Thriving 
And one of our goals was to be able to sort of speed up the process through which the research that I and my colleagues do gets into the hands of people like Lisa, who are just on the ground, because the sort of old process of like, oh, I'm going to do a study and I'm going to publish it, and eventually it'll trickle down to therapeutic practice. We don't have time for that anymore. (laughs) We're in a state of emergency. And that's why I'm so excited to connect with you, Lisa, because part of what we're trying to do is be like, let's reach out to the clinicians because they're seeing kind of what is being presented. And things keep changing because the legislative climate has brought up a lot of pain. And so the ground beneath us keeps shifting. And so research and practice have to really be responsive to each other. And we have to listen to what folks are bringing into the clinic. And then we have to keep studying it and then get that information to the folks who are seeing those folks firsthand. As a researcher myself, you know that I believe in exactly what you're saying, because we take and do research to immediately within a month or two, get it into the hands of people. And Lisa H., I know you're appreciative of this as well, especially Lisa D. moving over and really doing some work in the space of Latter-day Saint families. So let me move to this question. And Lisa D., let's have you answer it first. Now, you published a brief through the Utah Women in Leadership Project specifically on social safety. And I love that study. Lisa H., you talk about that safety issue as well. So Lisa D., this is funny, calling you Lisa I know. G and Lisa H. So how do you define a quick definition of what social safety is and why it's so critical for all of us? And then Lisa H. would love your feedback and insight about that as well. So I borrow my definition of social safety from George Slavich, who's a psychologist and a psychoneuroimmunologist, whose his work really introduced me to the role of social safety in the human immune system, that because humans are a social species, we are not born as individuals. We are meant to be connected to others. It's a part of our legacy as humans. And so for that reason, we need to feel deeply connected to others and protected by others. From birth, you see that in the incredible importance of infant caregiver attachment for human well-being throughout the life course. But it's beyond that. We need to feel part of a group. We need to feel that we're included. And so I define social safety as a sense of unconditional connection, protection, and affirmation by the people around you. And unconditional is a really important part of it. You shouldn't have to earn it. And that's sort of family thing, that your family loves you just because you're you. You. you don't have to prove it to them. You don't have to earn their love by being perfect. And the other aspect of safety that I think is really important is that notion of protection. This is more than just support. This is people willing to put their body between you and danger. And we all need to feel that there'd be somebody that would come running for us. I love that. What you've talked about in the report, I just learned so much from working with you on that, that what we're talking about is not just emotional and mental, that those elements move over into your physical health, right? Yeah. When we perceive, and there have been really elegant laboratory studies showing that if you sort of experimentally create a situation of exclusion where someone is pushing you away, your body will respond by pumping out what are called inflammatory cytokines, which cause inflammation in your body. And it's because in the era where we evolved, in the ancestral period, if somebody was excluding you, it meant you were about to be hurt physically. Mm -hmm. It meant you were about to experience violence. That was true millions of years ago. And so our bodies retain that legacy. And so exclusion, especially by the people who are supposed to protect you, like your family, activates our bodies and gets them readying for 
battle. And that isn't necessarily a big health problem right away. But over the years, that inflammatory process in the body, we know that it's a direct pathway to cardiovascular disease. And I say that in my master's work in exercise physiology and wellness, I studied that how much if your body has too much stress for too long, oh my gosh, it leads to all of those things. It leads to all those things. And so, yeah, one of the things I talk about when I talk to parents is that kind of enfolding your kid with a sense of protection and unconditional nurturance, that's a biological event for your child. Like that's a health intervention to allow them to feel your love surrounding and protecting them is as important for their physical health as feeding them good food. And it's just because of the way humans are made. Humans need other people. We need them like food and water. Thank you so much. Lisa, H, thoughts? It's so interesting that, let's say from the religious perspective, love, of course, is like one of the cardinal virtues. However, we also come from this Western background. And if you're LDS or LDS adjacent, you have at least a vicarious, pioneer, industrious background that says that what you produce and how you behave is at least as important as if you love. And so parents, as they're raising children, they start feeling like if my child is not behaving, if my child is not conforming, they are going to miss out on belonging. And so they recognize they often come to therapy for behavior or for my child is not conforming or they're not producing or they're not achieving. And they want to focus on behavior and improving behavior. And what Lisa D has just described is the bedrock that if it's not there, nothing else will matter and the disparities will continue to grow. We know that our young people who have this sense of being enfolded and protected and someone will be there for them and no one changes the way they look at them because of their sexual or gender identity, they have a chance of moving forward in their lives. And those whose families focus on the behavior have less of a chance of moving in the direction the parents want them to go. That just resonated with me because I was raised in a home. My dad was seminary and institute and all of these things. And we produce. I have always produced and I still have that. And someone told me that I was training for some kind of thing where we had to do an assessment and we had to coach each other. And she told me this was a real interesting thing. She told me your identity is absolutely tied in with doing not being. I know Lisa D pays attention to my research. I do a lot. Why can't yeah. But am I just love? That's our transition. And it's not just the Latter-day Saint community. I think this is also a part of American Western that's work ethic. Like you prove your salvation by being industrious. And I think that's something a lot of us internalize early on. And one of the ways in which I've seen it sort of show up recently, you know, I was at a conference that was on health disparities in cancer related to LGBTQ populations. And there were a bunch of like young, fantastic graduate students there who were studying all this stuff that had forms of intersectional marginalization. They were like Black, Latina, LGBTQ folks doing all this research and winning all these awards. And I remember thinking as I listened to them talking about all their accomplishments, I'm like, oh, I have a feeling like it's the same sort of thing. Like I'm going to make sure that I'm okay by doing a lot of stuff. And so I would go up to some of these young graduate students and they'd be telling me all their achievements. And 
I'd be like, I bet there's a little part of you that's worried the moment you stop producing all of these publications, that all of the support you're getting will disappear. And I want you to know that you are fine even if you stop doing all this stuff. They would literally start crying, you know, and I was like, wow, I want the next generation to do this work, but I don't want them to carry forward the legacy that they're purchasing their acceptance by producing because that just keeps the hamster wheel. I think you're so right in that really is American culture and probably beyond American culture. But we see that exaggerated maybe in religious contexts. Lisa H., anything you want to add about with that topic? Sure. There's two things that come to my mind. One is that as our young people I've come out, and I say young people, but there are many, even adults in their midlife who are trying to figure out whether they should come out because mm-hmm. once they've established some sort of social safety based on being able to pass as straight or cisgender, and when they decide that their authenticity demands that they come out and they usually spend months or years considering this, what they don't want to have happen is that people around them change in the way the social safety is offered. And I'm thinking that LDS people listening to this recognize that the beginnings of this where they're afraid that they will do something that will make their congregation start treating them as a project rather than as someone who resembles them enough that they'll show up for them because they just feel with them. But it happens. So it's reality, right? I guess this is a question I would, how do you counsel them? Well, that's a hard thing. It is. And the world of mental health would suggest that we try to build up individual resilience. And yet, one of the things that's most important about this issue is that it's community-based resilience that makes all the difference. Individual resilience, when we build it up, it actually has been shown to increase depression when people interact with the outside world. And I think there's a lot of movement in the field to viewing resilience not as a property of individuals, but as a property of the social network. Resilience, again, Western notion, resilience, grit, something that you possess inside of you that makes you able to cope. No, 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 no. We are social creatures. When individuals have plenty of access to the support and protection of others, that's where resilience comes. So fostering it as an individual trait is not as important as fostering it as a community, as a culture of support. So we're really talking about the community of family and extended family and the religious community. Lisa H., I'm going to ask you about that in general, but then want to lead into some specific research that Lisa D. is working on. But first, Lisa H., comment about that. But also, are there very many studies about Latter-day Saints and LGBTQ individuals? Talk about that a little bit, and then we'll go to Lisa D. There's a lot of research about that. And although every person who understands this, who can maintain their activity in a family or who can maintain their activity within our religious context is needed and their voices are needed. But it's super important for families to recognize that members of our families who are sexually and gender diverse need the community of others who resemble them in whatever intersectionalities there are. That's the only way to actually access the community-based resilience. For example, let's say return missionary who is deep in LDS community-based resilience, who recognizes that their sexual identity is not connected with this, will actually experience diminishment of their mental health to the extent that they can't share that with that community. And then if they go to an event where this other identity is valued, they will also feel like they don't belong. This intersectionality is one of the places where we find the most challenge to mental health. So helping people, whether it's your brother or your sister or your child or your aunt or uncle, find that connection with others who resemble them is an essential piece. 
And Pauline Potter, when you and I were talking to her, her finding for herself as a parent of LGBTQ, she found this community of other parents who were Latter-day Saint with LGBTQ. And that seemed to give her all the tips. I will say over and over and over, parents who are listening to this, you will have emotions, you will have feelings, you will have experiences that your child should never hear. Mm -hmm. Child is not the repository. It doesn't go both ways. Mm -hmm. You are the protector, a generator of social safety and health for your child. Connect with other parents who you feel connected to talk about your experiences and your feelings. Thank you. And I know you mentioned that before. That's an important point, I think. And I learned that's good for me to learn. I don't have children that are in the same situation, but people ask me. So I will refer more to you all than myself. So Lisa D., let's go back to a key theme in your research is mattering. You haven't used that word, I think, but that's what you're talking about. What is mattering? I really struggled over there. It's like, how do I communicate? What's the core thing that everyone needs? And because we're social species, we need to feel that we matter to other individuals, that we will not be left behind, that we will be brought along. When someone matters to you, you're affected by them. Their pain affects you. And what we all need as humans is to believe that what we're experiencing internally affects the people around us such that they will step in to protect us because they can't bear to watch you suffer. We need that as human beings. We need that. And the thing that I find kind of hopeful about that is a lot of parents will say, well, of course my child matters to me. And it's like, okay, so then start with that. How do you show it? Find a way to make that evident because it may be second nature to the parent to think, of course my child matters to me, but children need to see it. They need it to be explicit. Someone mattering to you doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they do or say. And it's absolutely possible and beneficial to like look at your kid and be like, I don't understand half of what you're saying, but I would go to the ends of the earth for you, even though I'm kind of mad at you. And to just sort of allow both things to be true. There is nothing you could do that would make you matter any less. I can disagree with you and I will cling to you. I can be angry with you and I would put my body between you and danger. And parents need to make that more explicit, that the child mattering to them is independent of whether they agree with what the child thinks or does or wants to do, that they can never lose that love. And it may seem to the parents' perspective, well, of course, obviously. Well, not obviously. And especially for adolescents whose social brains are rapidly developing and who are hypersensitive to judgment and criticism, they may need to hear really explicitly, even when I disapprove of you, even when I'm angry with you, I would put my body between you in danger in a heartbeat. I love how you've described that. You got me teary-eyed. I love how you described that. So Lisa H., I really want to take the last five or 10 minutes to wrestle specifically in the Latter-day Saints space. So this concept, how does that connect with the work that you've been doing? Well, I almost just want to put it. I think sometimes Sometimes in our religious experience, we talk so much about honoring and love and we have high ideals, but it comes down to explicit messages 
in the way that Lisa has just described. And I also want to add two others that I think are essential for social safety in our context. And that is, and maybe it's because of what we talked about before, but valuing our children's contributions or valuing the contributions of others in our circle who are sexually and gender diverse. We don't just value them and love them and want them with us. Unless their contributions are valued, the message won't get through. And the second one is, unless they are enjoyed, the message will not get through. It will just seem like words. So I advise parents, look at what your children are doing or neighbors or whoever it is that is in your circle. If you want to make a difference in community-based resilience, or if you want to have a better relationship with your family member, what are they contributing to you? And how are you communicating that you value that contribution? And if it's tied to their identity, that will make the difference. Mm. You're not just going to value things that are still going to church and being with the family and being family evening and praying, but your perspective as transgender person is opening my mind to love, that kind of thing. And then communicating that you enjoy that, that this is actually building your life of connection and enjoyment as a person who might be straight and cisgender. And if that's a challenge, that is where your work is as a human being. I love the emphasis on enjoyment because the other thing that we do in our Western productivity-minded culture is we downgrade joy and pleasure. And we're like, that's a luxury. It's really not. When we laugh with the people in our family, joy and pleasure and laughter, those are things that tell our nervous system, okay, you must be okay. You must be all right if you're laughing. Think of how many movies and plots have a tense moment then is solved by laughter. We treat joy and pleasure and laughter as signs of safety. And so in the family, one way that you can make your kid feel safe is to invite them into joy and pleasure and laughter and to make yourself a part of theirs. Ask them to show you the videos and the things they're reading that make them laugh. Laugh with them. I love that. That is part of that kind of neural structure of connectedness that we can make fun of ourselves with each other. We can let down our guard. We can just enjoy and drink up one another's presence. And you don't have to talk about controversial issues to do that. You just sit, you know, people are like, what if, you know, you can't agree? I'm like, just sit next to them, put your legs around each other, watch something on Netflix that you both enjoy, and just remind your bodies that you are connected and that you take joy and pleasure in one another's presence. And just let that do its neural work of being like, this is a safe person. This is a place and space of joy and relaxation and nurturance. I love that because it's more than LGBTQ. Kids doing things that you might not agree with <laughs> and which all of mine have and just separate that. This is so good. So Lisa D., we are running out of time, but we have about five more minutes. I want to hear more about research that you have done, conversations you have having research or thinking about whatever specifically on Latter-day Saint families. What we're really focusing on now, and we've actually got a big project going on, we're trying to begin a long-term longitudinal cohort study of LGBTQ Utahns and the people who love them. Because we believe that most studies focus on one individual at a time and then ask them about their family members, we're realizing we can't understand health and well-being over time unless we actually bring the members of the family network in and look at how they as a unit are progressing and changing. And parents and kids may be adjusting in different time points, and that's okay. What we want to be able to do is to be able to give families 
some guidelines as to like what we know is over time, it maybe takes this long and you might see this and this might change first and don't freak out. You're on a path and you're going to get somewhere. So we're really trying to do some basic observational work because what we've really found is that this community is different. Utah has a very unique culture and the findings from studies of folks around the country don't necessarily apply here. So we're really trying to kind of dig deep into what our culture, what we can learn by looking really carefully and closely at what predicts well-being here and so that we can get some of that information into the hands of people like Lisa so that they can bring it to the people they work with. And Lisa H., isn't this exciting for you to be able to have more research to point you and help the work that you and the clinicians, therapists do? Absolutely. We live on research and we also live on mentors, which is why I'm so grateful for Lisa D. being here in Utah. The mentors in the sexual and gender diverse community are not as many as the people who exist in it. And I know, uh, Susan, you also know the value of mentorship in women's leaderships. And it's the same thing for our young people who need that mentorship to thrive. So I'm really grateful uh, for both of you. Well, thank you. We're grateful for you, I'm sure. I'm speaking on behalf of Lisa D. and myself. I just appreciate both of you. I will have one last question, and that is, what can we, as Latter-day Saint, there's going to be some men listening in, but a lot of Latter-day Saint women, some who may have LGBTQ kids, as Lisa H. said, people in our lives, neighbors or nephews or nieces and so forth. What can I and we do to build that foundation of love that you're talking about? What can we do? Lisa D., I'll start with you and then finish up with what advice do you have for me and others? You know, I think most individuals have that basic impulse of connection and support kind of in them. We all have it. And then sometimes we talk ourselves out of it. And I think there is no instinct in individuals that is stronger than the instinct to love and connect. It's just a part of our birthright as humans. So I think it can be helpful for folks to just sort of tap into that. Just get the chatter, the sort of prefrontal cortex chatter, kind of get to that heart kind of soul connection level connecting to other individuals, human to human. Think about the feeling you get when you make eye contact with someone, when you really kind of lock eyes with them and the way that kind of affects you. That is that deep human part of us and sort of just putting everything else aside and connecting to that level of what it means to be there for one another as humans, that that's independent of all the chatter and all the politics and all the lessons. It's that human level. And we all have access to that at any time. It's just we choose to enter that space and to honor that space of connection that is just as deep in us as anything else as humans. Thank you so much. And Lisa H., before I go to you, I do want to make a statement just and hopefully you can address this because I just had my mind go back to an inclusive leadership class. I taught for six weeks with about 35, mostly men, Latter-day Saints, (laughs) on inclusive leadership. And one of the discussions we had that they were wrestling with is how do I love, but also make sure they know that I'm not agreeing with their choices. Lisa H., you're laughing because this is a space I see. And, you know, because sometimes we feel, me included, that if we show too much, that would be acceptance and maybe, right, right, you know that space that I'm in, I'm talking about. And say this, what you just heard so profoundly from Lisa Diamond, I was thinking as she's saying this, 
that if whoever was recording what Jesus said at the Last Supper, or whenever he was talking with his disciples, and he said, by this shall men know you are my disciples, it would have been what Lisa just said. That's how we know that we're followers of the deepest and best values of our faith. He didn't say, and yet make sure everybody knows you don't agree with them. And if I were in that meeting, that's what I would say. Are you followers of Jesus? Or is your important message, you're not behaving the way I think you should? And then we go back to, what is it that moves our community forward and lifts us? Even in therapy, it's not, here's what you should be doing. A therapist never says that. A therapist says, what is the best within you and how can you bring it forward? What's your vision of that? And how can I help you see the best way to go about that by your own life? So I believe it's the messaging that we've talked about today that I would like to leave people with. I love what Lisa said because it is the place of mindfulness that allows us to bring our best gifts forward. And I want to add to that. We need to listen to what others tell us, our messages. If our children tell us that our messages are not accepting, instead of saying, how can that be? I'm so accepting. Look at all I've done. We have to say, what is it about my messaging that is not communicating that love that I intend for them to feel? The problem is not in me or in them. It's the dynamics. And I have to see how am I contributing to that. I want to leave parents with the desire to listen to what others are telling them about their messaging. I think what you just said, Lisa H., well, all of this conversation, so profound, is I always leave listeners with a challenge for the week. And I think challenging ourselves on what you just did and practicing. I mean, it doesn't have to be with maybe you don't have an LGBTQ person in your surrounding. It can be with anybody to practice exactly what you said. So I would put that out for our listeners today, too. And myself, can I say that with my children is to get that deeper connection and just listen and think about the things that we've talked about today. Thanks to both of you for your profound, I've felt the spirit so much in your messages today for me and things that I can do and hopefully others listening in as well. So thanks to both of you for being here today. And to listeners, please follow Unleashing Sister Saints on Facebook and Instagram for more information and to stay up to date. And if you like a particular episode or show in general, including this one, please share it with others and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unleashing Sister Saints. This is Dr. Susan Madsen, and I'm devoted to unleashing the positive impact of Sister Saints on the world.